Hello and welcome back to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio and your source for all the latest mental health-related news. Every week I bring you news related to the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, and how to make sense of media reports regarding research into the causes and potential new treatments of mental illness, along the way trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it, but without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years of experience in the practice of psychiatry. And welcome back, folks. Appreciate your joining me again. This is the Wednesday, March 26th edition of Psychiatry Today here in 2014. Hope you've been feeling well lately. And as always, if you do have any mental health-related concerns or questions, perhaps you're struggling with your mental health and not sure what to do to try to feel better, or maybe it's someone close to you that you're concerned about, feel free to use me as a resource. Be happy to lend whatever suggestions I can to try to get you or someone close to you turned around or at least steered in the right direction. And also, maybe you've listened to something on a previous show or uh, something on tonight's show that you haven't heard yet that you might want to get back to me about with further questions or comments. In any of those cases, I would love to get some feedback from you. So the way to do that would be to send an email to me. And my email address for this show is Dr. Scott, spelled D-R-S-C-O-T, at RadioSandySprings.com. That's D-R-S-C-O-T at R-A-D-I-O-S-A-N-D-Y-S-P-R-I-N-G-S dot com. And I want to assure anyone who's contemplating sending me a message that I will not allow any identifying information to go out over the air. Um, Just read the question give you my answer and my feedback without giving any clues as to who it was that sent the question because I know how important confidentiality is. Uh, So let that not be any impediment or hesitation to sending me a question. Now, this week, there's going to be one item on the show that's just an important item uh, that I found this past week having to do with the dangerous effects of sleep deprivation. But then pretty much the entire rest of the show is going to be about teen mental health, Uh, just because I seem to have accumulated a large number of articles that I found relating to mental health issues in teens or adolescents. Uh, So for those of you who have a child or grandchild in that demographic, it might be an especially important show for you to hear tonight. But first, the first item up on the agenda is an article that I found the other day, The Seven Dangerous Effects of Sleep Deprivation. That seven number is obviously still very prevalent in our culture. We have the uh, seven habits of highly effective people, right? The seven deadly sins... This isn't quite like the latter, but as we'll get to when we go through these 
Seven Dangerous Effects of Sleep Deprivation, uh, it actually can be deadly, believe it or not. <clears throat> the article is based on the premise that most of us are caffeine-fueled and plagued by a 24-7 society where we're constantly plugged in, overworked, and stressed. And there's obviously a tremendous amount of truth to that assertion. These daily habits take a toll on the body and impair its ability to adequately function for maximum health and optimal performance, especially since they contribute to poor sleep. While one night of short sleep won't jeopardize your health, long-term sleeping problems can have dangerous, even fatal, effects on your overall health and wellness. And now we'll go through these seven dangerous effects of sleep deprivation one by one. Number one, sleep deprivation and junk food cravings. The inability to sleep may lead most of us to open the fridge at 2 a.m. and reach out for the unhealthiest high-calorie snacks. But why? Well, on the surface, it seems fairly obvious. If you wake up during the night, it's been quite some time since dinner, you're more likely to notice that you're hungry. But even if not, you might think, maybe if I just eat something, it will help me fall back to sleep. Now, a study in the journal Nature Communications found sleep deprivation disrupts food choices in two ways. First, it dampens activity in several brain areas responsible for appetitive evaluation, which means our ability to rank different foods in the mind based on what they want, and second, an increase in the brain's amygdala, that's the area responsible for controlling the salience of food. So excessive sleepiness impairs decision-making abilities while increasing our desire for unhealthy foods. This affirms the association between a lack of sleep and an increase in weight gain and obesity. Number two, sleep deprivation and your skin. Beauty sleep is no myth. A lack of sleep can lead to dull skin, fine lines, and dark circles under the eyes. When the body doesn't receive adequate rest, it begins to release more of the stress hormone cortisol, which can break down skin collagen. In a study published in the Journal of Investigative Dermatology, researchers found poor sleep quality is correlated with reduced skin health and accelerates skin aging. In addition, not only did sleep-deprived women show signs of premature skin aging, they also showed a decrease in their skin's ability to recover after sun exposure. Number three, sleep deprivation and memory loss. How many of you out there have been concerned that you have trouble remembering things? Did you ever consider it might be that it's just because you're not getting enough sleep? On the days that you're most tired, you may also find that you are the most forgetful and unfocused. Sleep helps us refine how we store memory, but a lack of sleep can lead to permanent cognitive issues such as memory loss. According to a University of California Berkeley study in the journal Nature Neuroscience, 
researchers found memories may be getting stuck in the hippocampus, which is a part of the brain involved in memory forming, organizing, and storing, due to the poor quality of deep, slow-wave sleep, which is then overwritten by new memories. In addition, sleep deprivation can cause brain deterioration, which may help explain memory loss in the elderly. Now, I'll also add here that if you suffer from sleep apnea, this is commonly associated with impaired concentration and memory during the day because the sleep during the night is not restorative because it's frequently interrupted by gaps in breathing. Most people, but not all, uh, who have sleep apnea also snore very loudly. So while that's an important clue, it doesn't mean you definitely have sleep apnea, but uh, the snoring definitely is an indicator that it should be investigated. Number four, sleep deprivation and sex drive. Ladies and gents, if you have a sexual appetite at all, be sure not to spoil it with a lack of sleep. Sleep-deprived men and women who report lower libidos tend to have less interest in sex due to less energy and sleepiness. Men who suffer from sleep apnea could also be at risk for low sex drive and abnormally low testosterone levels. A study in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism found about half of the men who suffered from severe sleep apnea secreted lower than average levels of testosterone during the night. Now, why would this be? Well, our bodies are fine-tuned so that certain hormones are secreted at certain levels throughout the night and day, for that matter, according to certain stages of our sleep cycle. Not just testosterone in men, but things like thyroid hormone, growth hormone, insulin in both men and women, and, of course, melatonin, which is secreted before bedtime. But the point is, sleep apnea would disrupt these fine-tuned cycles and therefore interfere with the proper secretion of many hormones, including testosterone. Number five, sleep deprivation and heart disease. Excessive sleepiness due to the attempt to maintain a work-life balance has become too common in our society and is dangerous for our heart health. Getting six hours or less of sleep each night causes the body to produce more chemical and hormones that can lead to heart disease, according to a study published in the European Heart Journal. These hormones and chemicals can increase the risk of stroke in other conditions, such as high blood pressure and cholesterol, diabetes, and obesity. Number six, sleep deprivation and brain damage. Men, to be, sh be sure to get enough shut-eye to protect your mental health. It's important for women, too, but the reason I say that is number six is about a study conducted by Swedish researchers who found that one night with no sleep can lead to an increase in the levels of molecules that are biomarkers for brain damage. The uh, study apparently was only done in men. Typically, an increase in the brain molecules 
neuron-specific enolase and S100 calcium binding protein indicate brain tissue has been damaged or that there is a fault in the blood-brain barrier or sometimes both. Apart from the fancy-sounding names of those brain chemicals, the main point being here that there are chemical markers of brain damage that are associated with lack of sleep. Now we have one more seven uh, dangerous effects of sleep deprivation to go over. We'll hold off on number seven till we get back from our first commercial break, which we're going to take now. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. Hello, this is Michael Daly with Atlanta Healing Center. We know that addiction is a brain disease. Addiction is a family disease. Addiction is a treatable disease. We have a caring professional staff with over 30 years experience to help you and your loved ones in your recovery. You can reach us at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Do your children know where their food comes from? At ConnectingFarmToFork.com, there's all kinds of ways to help your child understand how 300 million of us here in America stay nourished, clothed, and healthy. Activities, food facts, and farm visits help young people learn about America's hardworking farmers and have lots of fun doing it. Visit ConnectingFarmToFork.com today for a learning experience that will really grow on you. ConnectingFarmToFork.com, brought to you by the people who care at Feedstuff's Food Link. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Have you heard of quantitative fluid analysis? Commonly called QFA, this test assesses your body at a cellular level and gives insight into your illness. Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center offers the QFA, an FDA-approved test that can often provide early diagnosis of conditions before they can be detected with other tests. Dr. Elena George believes in an integrative approach to medicine. She believes in treating the problem and not the symptom. Following a review of your results, Dr. George will suggest treatment approaches such as nutritional counseling and or the use of pharmaceutical-grade enzymes and nutritional supplements. Surgery and prescription medication will be recommended only when necessary. Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center is located in Atlanta at 1776 Peachtree Road Northwest in Suite 260 North Tower, two blocks south of Piedmont Hospital. They are open Monday through Friday, 8.30 a.m. until 4 p.m. Additional details are available at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. Call their office at 404-591-9100 to make an appointment and mention that you heard this ad on Radio Sandy Springs and get 10% off of QFA testing. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay with you, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio. We're talking about seven dangerous effects of sleep deprivation. And before the break, we just went through six, so now we're up to seven. This is the deadly one, folks sleep deprivation and death. Heart problems and diabetes aren't the only conditions that can lead to sleep deprivation-related death. People who sleep anywhere from six and a half to seven and a half hours tend to outlive those who sleep for less. A study in the journal Sleep found that men who got less than six hours of sleep a night were four times more likely to die over a 14-year period. Several nights of too little sleep 
can lead to more than 700 genetic changes that could significantly affect your health. The National Sleep Foundation recommends adults get about seven to nine hours of sleep each night. This requirement is contingent on genetic and physiological factors along with age, gender, and sleeping patterns. Sleep deprivation is mostly in your control and you can prevent the seven dangerous effects it has on your health. And let's just recap them one more time. Number one, sleep deprivation increases junk food cravings. Number two, it degrades the health of your, and appearance of your skin. Number three, sleep deprivation leads to memory loss. Number four, sleep deprivation decreases your sex drive. Number five, sleep deprivation increases your risk of heart disease. Number six, there's evidence that sleep deprivation can result in actual brain damage. And finally, seven, sleep deprivation increases the risk of death. Well, there you have it, folks. It's one thing to have that information. It's quite another to alter your sleep habits and make them healthier. That takes commitment and uh, reorganization of your time. So no one's saying that's an easy thing to do. But hopefully that information will give you some incentive to work on it. <clears throat> now, for the rest of the show, we're going to be talking a lot about mental health-related issues relating to teens and adolescents. Uh, but I want to give you this article about eating disorders sort of as a follow-up to something we talked about on last week's show. If you remember, there was an, a very useful article about how to talk to a friend who has an eating disorder, in other words, to try to help them uh, see how they can stop the eating disorder behavior and get help for themselves and get better. So this article I found also about getting to the root of eating disorders, which uh, may lead to obesity or anorexia, they're widespread and growing in number. And the poor success rates of current treatments have led researchers to look for new therapies. Currently, medications, diet counseling, and surgery are the methods used to treat very obese people. Methods that do not involve surgery have only a small chance of controlling weight for a long period of time. Surgery in which the stomach is bypassed or reduced in size with staples or bands has been more effective in long-term weight control, but can have serious side effects. People with anorexia have only medications and counseling as treatment options. Preliminary studies testing a new technique called deep brain stimulation used successfully to treat people with Parkinson's disease and obsessive-compulsive disorder have suggested that this also may be effective in treating eating disorders. The number of people who are considered very obese has doubled in the last 20 years. Extreme obesity is linked to many serious health problems, such as high blood pressure, heart troubles, stroke, diabetes, arthritis, infertility, and others. On the other end of the eating disorder list 
is anorexia, which is a refusal to maintain normal body weight and usually involves drastic undereating. Over 20% of patients with anorexia get no results from current treatment, and 6 to 11% will die from the disorder. Deep brain stimulation is rather invasive to say the least. It involves placing a microelectrode into the brain and delivering a small pulse of electricity to that area. Now, currently, this treatment is approved by the Food and Drug Administration to treat the disabling tremor of Parkinson's disease and also for the treatment of obsessive-compulsive disorder that has not been helped with other treatments, including medication. Recent research has shown that different areas of the brain are active in overeating and in anorexia. This finding was an important step toward being able to use deep brain stimulation to treat obesity and anorexia. Two studies done in 2013 suggested that deep brain stimulation may benefit people with anorexia. In both of these 2013 studies, women were the research participants, and the researchers measured body mass as an indicator of how the treatment worked. An increase in body mass would suggest that the women were gaining weight, an important goal in the treatment of anorexia. Research on the part of the brain that is affected in Parkinson's disease has provided information that may prove useful in the treatment of severe obesity. This part of the brain is called the dopaminergic system. Now that this part of the brain has been identified, scientists believe that by targeting this area with deep brain stimulation, they will be able to turn off the signal to overeat that these people are getting. And it is anticipated that deep brain stimulation may be able to be performed easily on severely overweight people. I think that's rather an optimistic projection. Again, you're talking an extremely invasive procedure implanting a microelectrode in brain tissue. Now, a limitation of the two anorexia studies was that they were done only on women, so the techniques also need to be tested in men. The number of participants in these studies was too small to definitively show that they were real and significant. Therefore, the results can only be called observations, not conclusions. There are five experimental research studies in progress currently, two on deep brain stimulation for obesity and three for anorexia. The information for the article was taken from a scientific paper that was published in the January 2014 edition of the journal Neurosurgery Clinics of North America. Well, I think you can see that while surgery to treat obesity, such as gastric bypass or lap band, was once seen as an extremely invasive sort of last resort option, those treatments are actually much more successful than anything else we've had up until now. 
including all the diet and weight loss, nutrition programs, and counseling and diets that you can think of. Of course, when it comes to implanting a microelectrode in the brain, uh, obviously that takes things to another level. The risks of that surgery include infection, strokes, seizures. Uh, but again, if you weigh the potential benefits uh, against the risks, uh, as you well know, anorexia, if uh, left unchecked, can be fatal. And certainly, much as we know from the positive results of weight loss surgery, the uh, benefits of healing obesity by getting someone to lose weight surgically are tremendous. Uh, it's the most reliable way to ensure weight loss and uh, decrease the risk of developing things like diabetes, heart disease, and stroke. Uh, so while I do emphasize that deep brain stimulation is not ready to be tried for severe eating disorders, uh, while it is quite invasive and entails a tremendous amount of risks, uh, this is how we once saw weight loss surgery for obese people, uh, which we now see as much more commonplace. All right. Well, now we're going to get into all the studies I promised you on teens and adolescents. We're going to stick with eating disorders for this first article, which talks about the fact that young men may have unrecognized eating disorders. And that's mostly because eating disorders are most often associated with young women. But a new study suggests young men can also become obsessed with their appearance and go to extremes to enhance their bodies. The problem can resemble a traditional eating disorder or involve use of drugs and supplements. And it tends to go along with depression, binge drinking, and use of recreational drugs. The results of these studies suggest we need to be thinking more broadly about eating disorders and consider males as well. Classical eating disorders, of course, include anorexia nervosa, in which a person refuses to eat, and bulimia nervosa, in which someone binge eats, then purges through vomiting or use of laxatives. For a lot of males, what they're striving for is different than what females are striving for. They're probably engaged in something different than purging. It has been established, or rather estimated, that one in every ten cases of an eating disorder occurs in men as opposed to women. For this new study, researchers used survey responses collected between 1999 in 2011 to see what concerns teenage boys had about their bodies. They also wanted to know if eating disorders were tied to later unhealthy behaviors, such as drug and alcohol use. The surveys were answered every one to three years by 5,527 boys who were between the ages of 12 and 18 at the start of the study in 1999. Now, I think since we have to take a commercial break coming up, we'll hold off on going over the results until after that break. So after that, we'll get into the results of this eating disorder studies in young men, and we have lots more articles to go over uh, with teen adolescent mental health. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott.
We'll be right back. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. This is Cheryl Linker host of the Master Gardener Hour on America's Web Radio, Saturday morning at 11 o'clock. Join us as we keep things fun and interesting as we educate you in the world of master gardening. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. When gardening is part of your life, it brings so much. Healthy eating, the freshest, most local produce, and playing in the dirt. At BonniePlants.com, you'll find all you need to succeed. When you grow Bonnie veggie and herb plants in beds or containers, you'll know where your food comes from. Homegrown veggies and herbs ready for cooking, eating, and enjoying. And you did it. So get growing with Bonnie Plants. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay with you here on America's Web Radio, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. And a reminder, any questions or comments about anything that I've discussed on tonight's show or a previous show that you listened to, or you have any mental health-related concerns that you feel you need help with, Please send those questions and comments to me to this email address. It's Dr. Scott, spelled D-R-S-C-O-T, at RadioSandySprings.com. That's R-A-D-I-O-S-A-N-D-Y-S-P-R-I-N-G-S dot com. And we're talking about a study of eating disorders in young men. Now, as I was saying before the break, researchers did surveys every one to three years on over 5,500 boys between ages 12 to 18, starting in 1999. They found that 31% of the teens, almost a third, had at some point binged on food or purged. About 9% reported a high level of concern with their body's muscularity, and about 2% were both concerned about muscularity and had used some type of supplement growth hormone derivative, or anabolic steroid, to enhance their muscularity. Use of those products rose to about 8% when the researchers looked at just 16 to 22-year-olds. The results from this study would suggest that males who are extremely concerned about their physiques are doing or using things that may or may not be healthy, to say the least. There are a whole range of products available online that we don't know if they're healthy or safe or not. We know that when a lot of them are tested, they're not what they're marketed to be. Those young men who used these enhancement products were also more likely than their peers to binge drink and use drugs. The behavior of those young men 
could be the male equivalent of binge and purge disorders because they're using the products to alter their bodies. About 6% of the young men surveyed said that in addition to muscularity, they were also concerned about their thinness. Overall, though, young men were more likely to be focused on muscularity, and that concern increased with age. Between 2% and 3% were concerned only about their thinness. Those young men were more likely to develop symptoms of depression later on. <clears throat> the overwhelming number of people, often young men, who are thinking about needing to change their body by using some of these supplements is certainly something the family should know about and clinicians should also be aware of. These behaviors and the use of these supplements should be tracked for future research. At this point, it's hard to say whether these behaviors are truly eating disorders in the sense uh, that we normally categorize certain types of behaviors. It would be unrealistic to expect young men and women not to be concerned about their weight or their bodies. <clears throat> but for some, it's all they're concerned about. In other words, it becomes all-consuming. The images that these teens are seeing of models don't even look like that. They've been airbrushed and shaded. So everyone believes they have unbelievable definition in their abs and their arms. This new research appeared in Journal of the AMA Pediatrics. The authors note that the survey's respondents were mostly white and middle class, which certainly may limit the study's relevance to other populations. Doctors and parents should be aware of their patients' or their children's attempts to change their bodies to make sure it's being done for the right reasons and in a healthy way. Now, <clears throat> more on teenage boys and their weight. The next article is about teen boys who believe that their underweight may face certain risks. It isn't always about fearing that you're overweight. As we talked about, uh, thinness uh, is the concern in many boys. Teen boys who think they're too skinny are at increased risk for depression, and they're also more likely to be bullied and to use steroids, according to two new studies. In one study, researchers analyzed data gathered from more than 2,100 boys who were about 16 years old in 1996 and followed for 13 years. The study included more than 1,400 whites, about 500 blacks, and more than 230 Hispanics. The remainder were Pacific, uh, sorry, Asian Pacific Islander, Native American, or other. So while it was still predominantly whites, there's a little more diversity than the earlier study that we talked about. Boys who thought they were very underweight but actually were average weight or higher had the highest levels of depressive symptoms. These results remained steady throughout the length of the study, which ended when the participants were close to 30 years old. 
So they were followed for quite a long time. Teenage boys who believed they were overweight but were actually a healthy weight were also more likely to be depressed than those who believed they were of average weight. However, they were not as likely to be depressed as those who believed they were very underweight. In the second study, researchers analyzed data from a 2009 survey of more than 8,000 boys in grades 9 through 12 across the United States. The study found that those who believed themselves to be underweight were more likely to have depression than those who were average weight or overweight. Boys who believed they were underweight were more likely to be victims of bullying and more likely to use steroids, according to the second study, which was published online recently in the journal Psychology of Men and Masculinity. While the research found an association between being underweight and being bullied and depressed, it did not prove a cause and effect link. These studies highlight the often underreported issue of distorted body image among adolescent boys. Teenage girls tend to internalize and strive for a thin appearance, whereas teenage boys tend to emphasize a more muscular body type. They found that some of these boys who feel they are unable to achieve that often unattainable image are suffering and may be taking drastic measures. Doctors treating depressed teen boys, particularly those who believe they are underweight or bullied, should be aware of the possibility of steroid use. Now let's get away from the eating disorder subject but sticking with teen mental health related issues and this next article is something that people who have children or grandchildren who have migraines really need to pay attention to because this is about how behavioral therapy may actually help to treat migraines in kids and teens. Children and teens with chronic migraines may find headache relief when they pair medication with psychotherapy, according to a new study. Researchers found that kids who received cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a type of psychotherapy that teaches relaxation and coping techniques, had significantly fewer days with headaches. This is a learning-based treatment in a sense that you as a young person can learn skills and apply them to everyday life. Migraines are severe headaches, sometimes accompanied by light sensitivity, even visual hallucinations or nausea. They can disable a person for hours or even days at a time. The majority of migraine sufferers are women. About 2% of adults suffer from chronic migraine, which is defined as having the severe headaches for at least 15 days per month. About 1.75% of children have the chronic condition. Despite the severity of chronic migraine, 
and how common the condition is in children and teens, there are currently no treatments for kids approved by the Food and Drug Administration. Instead, the antidepressant amitriptyline, which was formerly known by the brand name Elevil, has been found to help prevent migraines, and it is sometimes prescribed for kids. Some studies have also suggested that cognitive behavioral therapy, a form of talk therapy that emphasizes changing one's responses to problems, may help children and teens to manage chronic pain. To see whether cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, could improve kids' ability to cope with chronic migraine, the researchers randomly assigned 135 chronic migraine sufferers between the ages of 10 and 17 to undergo either CBT or an education program about headaches. All the participants were also taking amitriptyline. Each child received eight weekly hour-long sessions of either headache education or CBT. That was followed by booster sessions at 12 and 16 weeks, plus three more booster sessions over the next year. Children in the CBT group received a modified version of a program that teaches coping skills to help control pain. It includes relaxation skills, such as slow and deep breathing exercises, and a biofeedback component to show kids the body's response to the techniques. The children in the education group discussed headache-related topics and received support from therapists during their sessions. And we're going to take our next commercial break right here, and when we come back, we'll discuss the results. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott here on America's Web Radio, and we'll be right back after this break. This is Dr. Elena George with your health tip of the day. Did you know that nasal stuffiness can cause snoring and decrease the amount of oxygen that your body receives? A decrease in oxygen to the brain can cause problems with memory and concentration, and in severe cases, it can cause stroke. A decrease in oxygen to the heart can lead to high blood pressure, and in severe cases, a heart attack. Nasal stuffiness can be caused by exposure to irritants such as dust, mold, pollution, and chemicals. It can also be caused by exposure to trees, grass, and certain foods such as corn, wheat, eggs, soy, milk, and various meats. Medical treatment with nasal sprays and or antihistamines that don't cause drowsiness can alleviate the congestion. It is important not to use over-the-counter spray decongestants since they can be addictive and actually make breathing more difficult. See your doctor for a complete evaluation of your nose. Please join me on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. for Medicine on Call. This is Dr. Elena George. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. 
Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio with you, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. And right now we're talking about how cognitive behavioral therapy may help to treat migraines in teens. Now, again, the, uh, the study was looking at CBT and with a biofeedback component and then compared with an education group that was just getting information about migraines. And so at the beginning, the children reported having migraines for an average of 21 out of 28 days. That's positively brutal. Um, can't imagine kids having to suffer like that. And on a scale that measures disability from migraine symptoms, where 50 or above is considered severe, they averaged a disability level of 68. That is just incredible. Now, after 12 months, the number of days with migraines had been cut by at least half in 86% of the children in the CBT group compared to only 69% of kids in the education group. So, therefore, you see the CBT the cognitive behavioral therapy makes a very big difference. Uh, they might not get rid of migraines entirely, but it can reduce them significantly. Now, the researchers also found that 88% of the CBT group scored below 20 on the disability scale at the end of the study. That compared to 76% of the headache education group a score below 20 on the disability scale signifies mild or no disability. There had been some evidence that CBT, in addition to medication, would be effective as treatment for chronic migraines, but that doesn't mean it will be widely available right away. Children and teens may be unlikely to follow through with a doctor's recommendation to see a therapist for chronic migraines. And doctors may not have the time or training to properly explain the rationale for CBT. Also, insurance companies may not pay for CBT. And also, there would be a need for more therapists trained in this technique. And there certainly are not enough, I can tell you that. Now, while researchers didn't examine the cost of the program, the total cost of treatment might be less than a typical medical imaging test, such as an MRI of the brain, which is commonly done in chronic migraine sufferers. You may be able to take advantage of the program used in the study if patients ask their doctors about CBT. Some families will see a summary of this data 
and potentially pursue it on their own. But more likely, it will be providers who need to explain it and push people to do it. In the future, it is hoped that there might be ways to alter the therapy to make it more accessible. For example, perhaps it could be modified to be partially delivered by computer or online as uh, a self-administered module. Now, a lot of therapies that used to only be delivered in person by a therapist are being delivered in this manner. And there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, just the advances in technology and this being a better way to reach people, especially very young people, and the fact that there is very limited insurance coverage for these specialized types of psychotherapy and, as I said, limited numbers of practitioners who are properly trained in, in these types of techniques. Now, let's turn our attention to the next article on tonight's show. Teens who were adopted are more likely to attempt suicide, according to a new study. Now, before any of you listeners out there who have adopted children and are now in their teen years get too alarmed, let's uh, listen to what the findings are and uh, see what relevance they may have. Teenagers who were adopted may be at greater risk of a suicide attempt than kids raised by their biological parents, according to this new study, which looked at more than 1,200 Minnesota teens and found that those who were adopted were four times more likely to have attempted suicide, more than 8% of adopted girls and 5% of adopted boys had tried to take their own lives compared to less than 2% of non-adopted kids. However, the lead researcher was quick to stress that parents should not be overly alarmed. Most of these kids were psychologically well adjusted. But parents and doctors should be aware of the relatively higher risk among adopted teens who are showing other potential risk factors for suicide, such as substance abuse or problems at school. The findings were published online late last year in the journal Pediatrics, and they are in line with what's known about adopted children's mental well-being. Adolescence in general is a period of higher risk for suicide attempts. Speculation has been that adopted kids' biological parents may, in general, have a higher-than-average rate of psychiatric conditions, so that may affect their children's odds of mental health issues. It's also possible that adopted children have more difficulty with social adjustment. The findings are based on 692 teens who were adopted before the age of two years. Three-quarters were from outside the United States, mostly from South Korea. Researchers compared these teens with 540 non-adopted Minnesota teens. The teenagers and their parents were interviewed at the study's start and again three years later. 
Over those three years, the researchers found adopted kids were more likely to have attempted suicide. 31 adopted girls and 16 adopted boys had tried it at least once. That gender gap is what you'd expect. Boys are 10 times more likely to complete a suicide because they use more lethal means. But girls are about 10 times more likely than boys to attempt suicide. And I'd like to point out this echoes what we see in adults as well. Adopted teens also tended to have more problems that can be associated with suicide risk, such as behavior problems at school and family discord. But even when the investigators factored in those differences, adopted kids were still nearly four times more likely to have attempted suicide than non-adopted teens. And although the majority of the teens were adopted from other countries, there was no evidence that they were at greater risk of suicide attempts than U.S.-born adoptees. Now, parents of adopted kids need not be alarmed, but should be aware. Do the same things any parent should. Listen to your kids. The more tuned in you are to their problems, the better you'll be able to notice when there may be a problem and you need to get help. Sometimes, parents can get stuck in being angry over adolescent rebellion and miss the problems that may be underlying it. And health professionals should listen to parents who are worried. Sometimes adoptive parents can be labeled as overly protective, but their concerns should be taken seriously. Next on the show, we're going to talk about the effects of marijuana smoking among teens' peers with more states approving recreational use of marijuana, there is a lot of legitimate concern about how this is going to affect children and adolescents. Well, it turns out that teens quit smoking pot if their friends are smoke-free. Whether teen marijuana users end up quitting the drug depends largely on who their friends are. A study involving 458 high school students who said they had smoked marijuana at least four times in the past month done in the United States, found that after a year, 19% of participants had stopped using marijuana. Teens were less likely to quit if they had friends who also smoked marijuana or if none of their friends attended their school. Teens were more likely to quit if their friends did not use marijuana. A lot of other personal and family factors, such as whether participants lived in a safe or disadvantaged neighborhood or had controlling parents, held little influence over teens' likelihood of quitting. Marijuana users tend to make friends with other people who already smoke marijuana. Previous studies have found adult marijuana smokers are more likely to quit if they are employed or married, suggesting that roles in adult life can conflict with marijuana use or make it more difficult. But you don't see much predicting cessation in adolescence because these types of things haven't come along in their lives as yet. But it still makes sense for public health campaigns aimed at curbing marijuana use to target adolescents. Such campaigns might teach teens about the negative consequences of having drug-using friends. This is a behavior that's much harder to stop when you're surrounded by people who engage in the same behavior. Although the study used surveys administered in 1995 and 1996 
The findings are very much applicable to today. Studies show that the percentage of high school seniors who say they've used marijuana in the last year has stayed fairly constant over the last decade and is currently at 38%. And alarmingly, the percentage of students who say they think the drug has great risks has fallen. These days, people are less concerned about the negative effects of marijuana, which suggests there may be more people in the future who are using marijuana, which then means you're going to be surrounded by even more peers using it, which will then make it more difficult for kids to quit. This is something we're going to have to pay very close attention to in those states such as Colorado and Washington, where recreational use and possession of small amounts has been decriminalized. Well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's show, folks. I hope that you enjoyed the information that I enjoyed bringing to you and that you found it informative. And I hope that until we get together again next Wednesday night, you have a wonderful, stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thank you for listening.